This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We've been in a series where we're talking about the Scripture, and so as we open up the Scripture this morning, I would like to uh, I'd like to pray, and um, I'd like to pray for us as we read and hear God's Word this morning. But we're not the only ones hearing the Word this morning who uh, are connected to. Grace Church. We're not the only ones, those of us in this room. Uh, children's ministry is starting where the, um, for the older kids, where the uh, word will be taught. And also in two minutes at 1045, the service begins over at Rambling Oaks, which is uh, an assisted um, living facility that we serve. They are over on Legacy, and we serve the seniors there by we have a team of people that go every week and uh, preach God's Word and sing with them. So they have a worship service every Sunday there as well. So they're about to hear God's Word. So I wanted to pray for all three groups uh, as we open God's Word that He would speak to us and, uh, and change us today. So let's pray together. God, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You speak through Your Word. How grateful we are for the richness of, uh, of Your Scripture, of Your Holy Word, Your God-breathed Word. Lord, thank you that as we open to James 1 right now, we will hear your voice. You will speak to us through this text. And we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would change our hearts. We ask that you would convict and encourage us uh, and that you would show us Jesus and that you would change us through this encounter. We pray for the children's ministry, Lord. Every teacher who will uh, tell a story, tell a Bible lesson today, Uh, We pray that as they look at Christ today, that their little hearts would be open to you and that you would speak and that you would convert as the word goes forth in those classes, Lord. We pray for that today. And on the other end of the life spectrum, we pray for the seniors who will be hearing the word this morning over at Rambling Oaks. We thank you for that ministry. Thank you for the faithful teaching team. And we pray that you would speak to uh, every uh, senior over there and that you would open their hearts with faith and stir hope and renew their hope in you and convert any that don't know you as well. So we thank you for all three places that we're attached to, Lord, where the word's going forth, and we pray that you would use it and uh, that it would bear good fruit in our lives today for you are glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we're in a, a four-part series on the Scripture. Today is the third of that four, four parts. The first week we talked about what should we believe about the Scripture, and we talked about the Scripture is God's breathe, God-breathed. It's the God-breathed Word. It's the very Word of God, the Scripture. We looked at this from 2 Timothy 3, and God speaks to us through His Scripture. Uh, Timothy's told to continue in it because through the Scripture we're taught about God. We're reproved. That is, we are, we're told to, how to avoid the wrong truths. We are correct told how to walk in the right path, and we are trained in righteousness so that we can be complete and competent, equipped for every good work that the Lord has for us. So the scripture is is powerful, and it's God's means of changing us. Last week, we answered the question out of Psalm 119, what, what should we feel about the word of God? What should our heart attitude be, our, our affections towards the Word of God. So we looked at that, and we talked about how we should, uh, God calls us to delight in His Word, to desire His Word, to be dependent on His Word. Today, I want to talk about what should we do with the Word of God? What should we do? This is a message on application. And before we read this passage in James, which is familiar to many of us, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this passage um, but in this, cha- this passage, it really reflects what James is trying to accomplish in the whole uh, letter. What he's trying to do is talk to people about the importance of a genuine faith, which is not just saying we believe, but actually encountering God, knowing God, and being changed by God. And so that's what he's talking about in the book. He's, he's writing about genuine faith in Christ. And so here he's talking about the person with genuine faith will hear God's word and respond to it. That is a sign of being a genuine Christian, not just saying I believe or not just identifying with some uh, facts, but actually receiving the word of God. So let's read. We're going to look at verses 22 through 25, but I'd like to read the verses prior to get the context in James 1. So this is James 1, 19. 
Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And our focus today, verse 22 and following, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it's a passage about applying the scripture. It's a passage about hearing the scripture and responding to the scripture. Uh, I read an illustration in a book that was originally written by, uh, the illustration was originally written by Chuck Swindoll who preaches uh, just down the street. So grateful that he teaches God's word in our city and the influence he has. But here is a, uh, a book that I think this was written in the 70s or 80s. So I edited a few parts just so it would sound a little more current. I took out the reference to disco, for instance, because I didn't think that. So it must have been the 70s, not the 80s. Uh, but this is what he writes uh, about doing the word. Let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding the company overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family in the move to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you in charge of the busy stateside operation." I tell you that I will write you regularly and give you direction and instructions. I leave and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters, and and it's better for the illustration. We would say email, but letters works a lot better, I think. So, goes to Europe. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office. I am stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room, and she's doing her nails, chewing gum, listening to her favorite radio station. I look around and notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks. Nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has temporarily been turned into a television room for watching daytime TV. What in the world is going on? What do you, what do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, we got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have had letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things that you wrote. Some of the things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two of the employees actually memorized an entire letter. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, you got my letters. You studied them. You meditated on them. You even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Do? Uh, We didn't do anything about them. The story ends. It's a wonderful illustration of what James is getting at in this passage and really in the whole letter. The the need to not only be familiar with truths about God, to not only be aware of Christian doctrine and theology, to not only be a reader of the Bible and a listener to teaching like we are doing right now, but to actually respond to what we hear. That's what James' point is. I want to talk about two ideas from this passage, and the first one is in verse 22. It's this, hearing without doing 
leads to deception. That's what James says. That's almost a quote. Hearing without doing leads to deception. Look at verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, the ESV puts doers first. Be doers before he, uh, he mentions hearers. Uh, be doers and not hearers only. They do that for a couple of reasons. One, that's literally how the text reads that James wrote. In Greek, the, doers, the doing part comes first. Uh, And it's also the emphasis, the reason it was written that way, it's the emphasis of the verse. It's the emphasis of the passage. Now, obviously, chronologically, you have to hear something before you can do what you hear. So chronologically, hearing comes first. But the emphasis is that having heard that the Christian is to respond to what we hear. Now, the passage is going to stress listening, and that's why I read the verses before. If you look up at verse 19 where we started, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, probably that's talking about more than hearing from God's word or reading God's word, but it certainly uh, would include that. Be a quick hearer is the verses before. And so we are to be careful, quick hearers. We are to be uh, those who listen to God's word. But the emphasis here is having listened, verse 22, we are to be doers of the word. And he's making a contrast here. He's not making a contrast between being a good listener and a bad listener. So the contrast of the passage is not one person is on the edge of their seat taking notes during the sermon, the other person is nodding off. The message is not that one person's just reading through the Bible uh, quickly to get it over with on Monday morning, and the other person is carefully reading slowly. He's not talking about being good listeners but versus being bad listeners. What he's talking about is being a listener who does something versus a listener that just listens and does nothing. That is the comparison that he makes. And he says in the latter case, the person who listens and does nothing, that they're actually being deceived. That's his word. Be a doer of the, be doers of the word and not hearers only, verse 22, deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. This is, this is startling because he's saying that you can be exposed to the truth and be deceived. The word of God is absolutely true. It is infallible. It is without error. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. But it's possible, he's saying, to expose yourself to this truth above all truths, this truth that every other truth must be measured by. It's possible to expose yourself to that truth and walk away deceived. That that is a provoking, I mean, that is, when I, if we think about that, that is alarming. That I, I, to the best of my ability and to the best of my knowledge, I'm teaching truth here right now because I have hardly said anything that's, that's not reflective of this verse um, directly, word by word. But it's possible that while this truth exercise is going on, there's deception that will come from this. That, that it's possible that when you get up tomorrow morning or tomorrow evening to read your Bible, that you could walk away and that the result could be deception, self-deception. That it's possible to read the truth and grow in deception. That is the warning that is provoking, that gets my attention from this passage. Now, how does that work? There's a quote from a Puritan. His name was Thomas Manton commenting on this. And he made a comment that I thought was very helpful. He says, men and women, people will say, people are easily deceived into a good opinion of themselves by their bare hearing. People are deceived into a good opinion of themselves by their bare hearing. What does he mean by that? That we can hear something and assume that there's been some kind of life change occur because of it. We can know something and assume that because we know that, that it's had an impact in our lives. It's, it's, it's easy to do this, that we can accumulate more knowledge about God and assume that that automatically translates into an increased maturity in God. We, we can assume that because we hear more and know more, that we are more godly. We can, we can equate learning about God with growing in God. 
We can hear a sermon about Jesus, or we can read the Gospels, we can study, have a devotional time, study a passage about Jesus, and assume that therefore we are more like Jesus. All of us can do that. And what James says here is that, is that growth in knowledge without application is not growth in holiness. Growth in knowing about God without application is not growth in holiness. As a matter of fact, it's, it's developing deception. It's growing deception. It's becoming deceived because we make assumptions about ourselves that aren't accurate. We, we, we don't have accurate self-awareness and self-knowledge. Now, when we read the Bible, there is a value to being informed. There is a value to being, that when we read uh, two weeks ago when we studied 2 Timothy 3, that was the first application. He said, the word of God is profitable, that is, it's useful for teaching. So there's a benefit to being taught about God. He's not saying that just knowing truth about God, that that's somehow uh, irrelevant, that we're just counting on what's everybody doing. He's not saying that at all. It's valuable to know, but if we assume that we know more things about Jesus and therefore that translates into being more like him, there, we're missing a step. We need to hear about Jesus. We need to understand Jesus. We need to hear the scripture read or taught And then we need to act. We need to apply what God is speaking to us from the passage. Now, at one level, this this type of deceit that because I know intellectually, uh, that changes my status. That, That type of deceit is really dangerous at this level. I don't think this is the primary point of the passage, so I'm just going to say this for a minute, but I think it's very important, is that this could be the grounds for a false assurance. And when I say that, I mean this could be the grounds of someone who thinks they're a Christian, but they're not. How many people in this part of the country in particular have had some exposure to the Bible? Uh, Now, there's plenty who haven't. Our culture is increasingly secularized. Um, and uh, so it, it, this, it's not like it was 10, 20 years ago, certainly not like it was a generation ago, 40 years ago or so. But still, we live in some of the last vestiges of the Bible Belt. And so a lot of people here will know something about Christ. As a matter of fact, you could, they could give you the right answer. They could say, oh, yeah, I know that Jesus is the Savior. Well, what does that mean? Well, he died for sins. Maybe they get that. They know something about They know that Jesus is God, for instance. They know a number of things like that, and maybe they even at some point acknowledge that. Well, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, or, you know, I even acknowledge those facts, but they're not Christians. They have been a hearer, but they've never, it's not translated into life change because they never experienced new birth. The Holy Spirit never made their heart new and gave them new desires so that they began a path of discipleship. In other words, they are people that know some facts, but they never became a follower of Jesus, a genuine believer. That's what he's talking about here, a genuine believer. He goes on in the next chapter to make a a really astounding statement. He says, you say that you believe in God, you do well. I don't know if it's sarcastic when he's saying that. It sort of feels that way, which may reveal a whole lot more about me than James. But it sort of says, oh, great job. You believe that God is one? He says next, even the demons believe and they shudder. So he's saying you can believe the demons are very well aware of who Jesus is, but they've never had saving faith. They've never really believed. And so just because we've been, I'm not trying to undermine anybody's genuine assurance at all. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But... We are to make our calling and election sure, the scripture says. And if you've just been exposed to teaching about Jesus, you grew up in the church, you heard it, you know it, you know the facts, don't assume that that means you're a believer until you have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, where you've handed him the keys to your life, we could say, where you have believed in him and him alone, not your works or anything like that, not, not your church attendance, not your moral behavior, but you've believed in Jesus alone as the one who died for your sins and was, ro- and was risen from the dead. Until you've done that and you've turned so that you're, you've believed in him and he, he's your father, you're his child, you're in relationship with him, you're growing in him. You're not perfect. You've got a long way to go. We all do. But there is a growth over time in the things of God. You're interested in the scripture. You're interested in the people of God. You want to live your life for his glory, to please him. Unless these things characterize you, then you may have been someone who just heard some facts and gave intellectual 
belief to them, uh, but never, it didn't affect your heart. And that's especially true if you're a church kid. And I, let's hear it. Shout out to church kids. I was a church kid. And so that's a wonderful privilege to be raised in the church. But there's a, there's a danger inherent in it as well, and that's that you're just familiar. You're like a fish in water. All of, ask a fish about the water, a fish can tell you nothing because a fish knows nothing but the water. And so you, you're, you've been in an environment where people talk about Jesus, your parents live for Jesus, and so you just make an assumption that you know him because, oh yeah, I do that stuff. I'm in that world. But you've never really personally turned from sin and believed and said, I give you my life, Jesus. I believe in you alone. I'm betting my life on you. I'm giving you everything. I trust you. I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to live my life for you. I want you to be Lord of my life, my Savior, my Lord. You've never really done that. There's not really been change in your life that would demonstrate that. And you're not saved by change. You're saved by faith. We're saved by faith alone, but it's never a faith that is alone. It's a faith that over time demonstrates its reality. And that's why in the next chapter, James is going to say faith without works is dead. Not because he teaches something different than Paul, but because what he says is, if you say you have faith and there's no life change at all, then you have to look at that and say, you have dead faith, not real saving faith. You don't really have. You've got intellectual faith. Because faith, through, faith that shows itself in life change over, over the lifetime will demonstrate a, a genuineness. So there's deceit of false assurance. There's deceit in thinking I'm a Christian and I'm not. And that deceit is a real temptation for church kids, for adults who were church kids or who'd just been hanging out at church, and for anybody who's been exposed We went to ask the Lord to open our eyes so that we really believe and trust him. But this passage, the passage I just mentioned in chapter 2, Faith Without Works, that that may be addressing unbelievers. This passage is more addressing Christians. And the Christian can be deceived as well. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because you think you're maturing, God's changing you, you're following God. I must be repenting. How do you know? Because I heard the sermon about repentance. Okay, that's nice, but there's a difference in hearing a sermon on repentance and turning my heart. See, here's the nature of deception. I mean, I cannot tell you 100% that I have no deception. I'm not deceived about anything. Because the nature of deception is that you're unaware. Deception doesn't work if you know. Like, if you get you're deceived, then you're not, then you're in the category of not deceived. Deception presupposes Unawareness. Deception means that I don't, I don't know I'm deceived. So I'm going to assume there's a level of deception in my life. You know, there is a level of deception about my self-awareness. And the reality is it probably works both ways for all of us. But there are areas in my life I assume I'm mature in when I'm really not. I may assume I'm a patient person until a great temptation of impatience emerges and reveals, well, maybe that's a little more who I am. The opposite's true for people as well. A lot of us, God is at work in our lives and is changing us, and we just don't see it. And so we think, I don't think I'm growing at all, but someone near you could point out, no, I see you growing. So deception can work both ways. The way this is talking about, though, is that we can assess ourselves uh, different than we are. And deception means that we are unaware of it. We need the Word of God uh, to expose and to teach us that. I read a story about deception that I thought was, uh, it was a telling story, and I think it applies. It's, a, it's, an, it's an analogy of what's going on here. This is actually from a couple years ago, but it was about, uh, uh, it's happened up in Iceland. I don't know anything that happens in Iceland, but here's something that happened. This is from uh, CBS News. It says, a woman went missing in Iceland over the re- weekend. She was reportedly found safe and sound by by herself. She found herself. According to the uh, Reykjavik grapevine, which is the the newspaper up there, you may subscribe, but uh, they say, the not-so-missing woman was a tourist. She participated in the intense police search over the weekend near Elja Canyon in the country's southern volcanic region. She was a part of the search party for herself. The mix-up apparently occurred when, during a sightseeing trip Saturday, the woman broke off from the tourist group and changed clothes. uh, When she returned to the bus in a different outfit, the rest of her group did not recognize her. Then, when a description of the missing person was offered, Asian, 
in dark clothing and speaks English well, the woman seemingly did not recognize the description of herself. So she began to assist the others in a search. So she comes in a different clothes. Have you seen this lady? No. What are you talking about? She's Asian? Oh, really? Okay, I'll look for an Asian. She speaks English well, dark clothing. Okay. Huh? She, they're talking about her. So the Coast Guard prepares a helicopter to come in, and they're all searching. It says, hours later, around 3 a.m. Sunday, the search party finally realized that, alas, the woman they were looking for was with them all along. And the search was called off. Maybe the most unnecessary sentence in the whole thing. The search was called off. Oh, okay. They're sharp up there. But he says, the chief, the chief of police, I can't pronounce his name, the chief of police said that the woman simply didn't recognize the description of herself and, quote, had no idea that she was missing. <laughs> she, had, she had, quote, that's what she said, quote, no idea that she was missing. That's the nature of deception. I had no idea. And that's why we have to look at this and think about this and be careful with this. Because we can come to a meeting like this and we can feel wonderful things. We can sing songs and uh, we can hear God's word and we can see our friends and we can feel things about God, wonderful things. We can agree with them. We can hear the word taught and we can agree with it and have no idea what we're missing. No idea what we're missing. That it's not just here to come hear something. It's not just gather to be informed intellectually, though that's part of it. It's not just coming and being, it's not just hearing about Jesus. Life change occurs when we hear and respond. Life change occurs when we hear the word of God and then intentionally think differently, uh, act differently, take a step of response in some way. Otherwise, we may not even know that we're missing. I'm a part of it, but I I just didn't even know what was actually really happening. happening. That's the point he's making here. Now, he gives this very memorable analogy, verse 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. And what's he talking about? He's talking about hearing and doing. Now he changes it to looking and doing. And he said it's like someone who looks in a mirror and doesn't do anything about it and just goes on. Uh, his or her way. So everybody here, I'm looking at you. You all look good. Everybody here has seen a mirror today. I can tell. No one just rolled out of bed and showed up here. A couple in the two and three-year-old class look that way, but, uh, but no one, no, I haven't even seen the kids there. I'm sure they look great, but, uh, but my kids showed up at church sometimes with, with hair a mess and missing a shoe or whatever. But, uh, so you all looked in a mirror today and I can tell that you were all seers as he says here and doers. He tells a story almost funny about a guy who looks at himself in a mirror, uh, at his natural face and goes away and immediately forgets what he saw. He immediately forgets. So he looks Like all of us in the morning, you wake up, you look in the mirror, you assess the damage uh, from the previous however many hours it's been that you slept. You look at it and you go to work. Guys do a little work. Ladies do a lot of work. And not because they need it, but just they just it's just the way it is. So everybody (laughs) may it's a blame the culture. I don't know. But they uh, so they do. So you do stuff. You you uh, you wash you. You know, you, you comb or brush, or you put product in your hair if that's what you do. You brush your teeth, you do whatever you need to do. Uh, you understand uh, the point of the story. So you look at it, you assess what needs to be fixed, you fix leave. He says, this guy, he looks in the mirror, he walks away and forgets. He just assume, he doesn't remember the image of what he saw and he assumes everything's okay. So he's walking around assuming that he's prepared for the day, assuming that he's addressed the issues and everyone else is looking at him going, whoa, did you just wake up? Did you just wake up? And, 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 and he says, that's what it's like to read the Bible and not do anything about it. Or hear a sermon. And that's what it's like. It's that mirror image. That that's, goes away and does nothing. He's not changed and assumes all is well. He has no idea he's missing what he's missing. He hears and doesn't respond. Now, the next verse gives the opposite. And this is the second point I want to make. So the first point was hearing 
with, uh, I'm sorry, hearing without doing leads to deception. Hearing with doing leads to blessing, is what the Bible teaches here. Hearing with doing, or hearing and doing, leads to blessing. Verse 25. This is very simple. This message today is super simple. Uh, verse 25. No one looks, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So he looks and he perseveres. I think the NIV or one of the other translations says he continues looking. So he doesn't just look and walk off and forget. He looks and keeps looking. Now, I thought about that. I thought, is that, what is that? That sounds a little strange, like, because that could be a different passage, right? About vanity or something. You're just staring in the mirror. Uh, but he says a couple things here. First of all, he continues. You know, we can take so much for granted. We just look at a mirror and we think they're talking about the same thing we are. Uh, they're talking, he's talking about the same thing we experience, but he's not. Uh, in James's day, there was no reflective glass that you would look in and see a perfect image like what we have. For a mirror for them would have been much, uh, much less clear. It would have been something like polished brass. So maybe you take brass and polish it so you could see yourself, but you wouldn't be able to see the detail that we can see. So to really assess and to work and to see what you see in the mirror, you would persevere. There would be a needing to look rather than a quick glance. Um, so that par- partly goes to their experience of a mirror. But he's looking closely, at, and he sees the law of liberty, the perfect law, the law of liberty, continues to look at that, responds. He's a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in what He's doing. So you see the pattern. There's two illustrations here. The first man, he looks, he leaves, and he forgets. And according to James 1.22, he's deceived. The second person looks, perseveres, uh, or continues to look, we could say. He looks, continues to look, acts, and then is blessed in what he does. And one of the things that's powerful about this is that when he looks into the mirror, he doesn't just see himself, but he ultimately grasps God. Because looking in the mirror is the word, and it is the law of liberty. It is the, uh, the he calls it in verse 25, um, the law of liberty, the perfect law, the law of liberty. So as he stares into the world, word, he sees freedom. He sees the truth of freedom, the truth that brings freedom, the truth that could be described as freedom. He doesn't just get a glance and go off. He stares, he perseveres in IV. He continues looking in this. And he's seeing himself and he's acting, but he's seeing himself. He's also seeing the perfect law of liberty. He's seeing, he's seeing the gospel. The message of freedom. The law of liberty is the message of freedom. It's the truth that God has set us free. That's the law of liberty. It's the revelation that God, the law is the revelation of God. It's the revelation that God has set us free. And so he looks and he sees the gospel. He sees the primary image of Jesus who lives a perfect life and dies on the cross for our sins, is buried for our sin, is raised to new life, who then is ascends to the right hand of the Father, pours out the Spirit on his people, and empowers us, gives us new life, and then empowers us to follow him. And it's freedom. I love it that it's called the law of liberty. Um, we talked some last week about the difference in discipline and delight. And even when there's no delight in the word, discipline is, in, is to lead to delight. That ultimately, that's what God wants to cultivate. The same is true with freedom. When we see the word of God, we see what Christ has done, and then we see what he calls us to do. He calls us into freedom. Some of us think that, well, if I read the Bible and do what it says, I'm going to be constricted. I'm going to be chained. <clears throat> I'm going to have no fun. My life is going to be, uh, it's, you know, my life is just going to be some terrible thing that God's going to somehow, he's this great restrictor. It is not true. He is, the, he is the deliverer, the Bible says. He's the one who brings freedom. He's the one who sets us free. So as we see the perfect law, the law of liberty, God's word, which reveals the gospel to us, and we believe that, and then we apply what God speaks to us, we seek to, as Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. As we see the gospel, the truth of Christ, believe it, and then seek to walk out the entailments of the gospel, what God, how he calls us to live, to represent him and to honor him. As we do that, it's a step into freedom. 
I mean, the, the person who shows up today at church, all messed up, matted hair, totally, uh, you know, eye stuff, the whole, I don't need to describe, the whole deal who just shows up here and didn't do anything, rolled out of bed and came, would you say, man, you are free. That is great. You didn't have to do anything. That's the life. No, it wasn't constricting to get an accurate assessment of oneself. It's freeing, ultimately. And so that is the promise. God wants, us to, cha- wants to change us through his word. And as we respond to his word, we, he will be blessed in his doing. What does that mean? Well, it means the, the God's, God's hand, God's help, God's attention, God's face, God's blessing is on our lives. Oh, does that mean I'm going to make a lot of money? Uh, no, not necessarily. It might mean you lose everything. But here's what happens. If you lose everything, you have the comforting presence of God, and you have his promise to provide, so you'll gain back. He will give you what you need. Oh, man, the blessing of God. That means I'll never be sick then, right? If I just read the Bible and confess it and say it, some certain scriptures especially pulled out of context, then I will never be sick. Is that what it means? No, it doesn't mean that. You might get sick. You might get terminal illness. You will die if Jesus doesn't return before it's your time. Uh, But here's what it means, that even in our suffering, God is with us. So it doesn't mean a problem-free life, but it means that wherever we are, there is the presence of God, the meaning of God, the wisdom of God to know how to navigate life. And it also means other kinds of blessing that we will be able to celebrate like no one because we know the creator and the reason and the meaning for celebration, that we will experience joy like no one. Everybody on the planet can experience joy by by common grace, but we experience true joy because it is tied to the giver of joy, the one in whom is all joy, the Lord. So it's not just power for suffering. It's the ability to really enjoy the blessings of life because we know the blesser. It's the ability to enjoy a fine meal. It's, it's the ability to enjoy marital intimacy. It's the ability to enjoy a surprising gift. It's the ability to enjoy all the gifts and provisions that God believe, it brings. It's the ability to enjoy friends and, and family. Uh, and all the various things of life, because we know the one who brings the blessing. So as we act upon the scripture, our life is, is blessed, is what he's saying. God wants us to make progress. God wants us to grow. God wants us to mature through this perfect law of freedom. God wants us to, to know him, to experience him. He wants us to look into the mirror of his word and see something of ourselves, and more importantly, of him, and then to respond and experience his blessing couple words on application. Can I make some application? I thought <laughs> making some application on application. It's like a dream within a dream. So there may be, a, may be a movie about this one day. It's an application within an application. Number one, first thing is expect to apply. Uh, expect to apply. <clears throat> I don't have a verse on this. This is, you know, just kind of a common wisdom that's held. But expectations are so important. What you expect is so important. And if we expect to apply, it, it'll totally change how we approach God's word. If I am expecting to listen, I'm expecting that God wants to speak to me. I'm expecting second, second Timothy three, that God wants to teach me. This is his God breathed word that he wants to teach me that he wants to reprove me, that he wants to train me for all that he has for my life. I'm going to expect to encounter God if I believe this is the God-breathed word. If I'm longing for him, if I see my need for him, I'm dependent upon him, I'm going to expect to encounter him through his word. He changes us through his word as it's read and applied or as it's preached and heard and applied. I think we cultivate expectations through prayer. It's that prayer we read last week. From Psalm 119, which is, open my eyes. It's the prayer, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Open my eyes to see you. Open my ears to hear you. I'm expecting to encounter you. That is the nature of the scripture. God, you reveal yourself to us in scripture. So I want to trust you that you will speak to me. I am listening. Lord, I want to listen. Help me listen. Help me not be distracted. Help my mind not run to the day's activities as I open your word in the morning so that I can't even think. Help me to focus. Help me to hear. Even if it's brief, help, give, me a, give me something of yourself. Reveal yourself to me. Guard me from deception. Help me not. Lord, I'm asking. I expect to encounter you and help me not just read through the Bible this year and not apply it. 
I, I don't want to just read, the, I don't want 2015 to be, that was the year I read the whole Bible. And yet my life looks like the office that Swindoll described in the opening illustration of this message. A lot of junk and no progress just read the letters as it was. So expect to apply. In, in related to that, I would say make growth your goal. Now, I want to be careful here because ultimately knowing God is our goal in reading the Bible. But knowing God is never to be left at the intellectual level. It's to be translated into our heart, our will, our affections, our direction. And it's to produce something. That's what he says. That's what this book is about. It's to produce something in our life. So knowing that growth comes from hearing and doing, make that part of your your, uh, goal as you read the Bible. Uh, So don't make Bible reading alone your goal, but make knowing God, which leads to application and life change. Life change is the goal, ultimately. Or when you come and hear a sermon, I know some, you got young kids, I know it's a challenge. And so some Sundays, it's a victory that you made it. Thank you for, for doing what it took to get here. So, so there are Sundays, some Sundays when it's tough with little ones, or maybe you're older and it's, you, you've, you've got aches and pains just to get here is hard. But we don't want to make a church attendance our goal. We're here to glorify the Lord and to have our lives changed. We're here to have our lives changed by the word. So we hear the word so that we may know him. And then as we know him, we respond to him and we grow in him as we respond so that we glorify him. We listen and apply for his glory. So really, I would say a lot of it has to do with what are we expecting? Why am I reading the Bible? What am I expecting to transpire when I show up on a Sunday? What what am I asking God to do? So as I'm praying through the week, what am I asking God to do when I come on Sunday? Do I even pray beforehand? Do I just show up and, you know, the band make it happen and the preacher make it happen and I'll just sort of, I'm in an entertainment venue. You guys, I'll just sit and listen and take it in and go about my way. No, that's not it. We're singing unto the Lord. We're hearing the Bible to inform us of God, to convict us, to encourage us, to change us as we walk out of here and we apply. In many ways, the sermon doesn't end in about five minutes here. Uh, the sermon begins in five minutes because the sermon is to be applied to life. So you're about to walk out that door, and then the sermon really kicks in. What we came for kicks in. It didn't kick in right now fully, but when we leave. Um, here, here's a point I would make about application that is, I think, perhaps the most important thing that I could say about application in my own life as I think about it and in others when I think about it and I talk to them. Uh, simplify your application. Simplify it. Simplify it. Focus your response. When you read a text in your daily devotional, maybe you journal about it, maybe, maybe you don't. Um, when you hear a sermon, don't try to walk away with ten things to do. Don't walk away with five things to do. Don't walk away with three things to do. Walk away with one thing. I think it's a manageable goal. If you, uh, you know, let's, there's 52 weeks in a year. Let's say you're a regular church attender. Uh, so you go on vacation a couple weeks, a couple weeks you're sick. So let's say you're here 42 times, 45 times a year, something like that. You hear 42, 45 messages. Maybe you've listened to podcasts, but let's just say that you just listen to that. You got that. Um, it, it'd be a lot better to have 45 applications in a given year. That's more than you can do. But if it'd be better to have 45 than to have five from each of those, which puts us at 200 and something, uh, which you're not going to do. So focus is so clear. Do one thing. I love what uh, the counselor, David uh, Pallison, says, that we attach one, I think he says it like this, we attach one piece of scripture to one piece of life. We make a simple application. And this could be confusing based on what we do at the church. At the end of a sermon, I'll, or during, throughout a sermon, I give application. Sometimes at the end, I'll give three different things, and I don't really explain that. And then you show up at community group, and there's like six questions applying the scripture. And you're going, whoa, man, that's a lot. Six questions and the three he gave in the sermon. Just pick one. I, I, I don't know everybody's need. I don't know everybody's living. So I have to shoot a shotgun. I have to, this, it's buckshot. It has to, a lot of things. So something that a teenager might relate to and something that an adult might relate to. So oftentimes what I'm doing is a little general and it's a little broad. So it's asking you to take some work and 
take one of those things and sharpen it and narrow it and apply it to your life. And so here's the sharp and narrow one. Just get one thing from your devotion. Get one thing from the sermon. So you're sitting down to a meal. This is a meal. The meal's over. You're going to get a to-go bag and just put one thing in there. Okay? That's what you do. So if you ate some of the meal, you don't put the chicken in the bag and the fries in the bag and the rolls in the bag and you're to go bag and get it all. Just put a little piece of chicken in the bag and take that and leave the rest in this room. And you take that to go bag with you and you munch on that all week long. Bad illustration because it wouldn't be very good after six days. But you know what I'm saying? So you munch on it all week long. So get one item in your to-go bag. Here's what, ask this. What is, what is one way God is calling me to trust him? What is one thing God is calling me to repent of? Those are two separate things. I wouldn't do both of those. I'd do one of them. What, what is, what is uh, one way God is calling me to serve another person? What is one practical step I'm to take to reach someone who doesn't know Christ? What is one truth God is calling me to believe about himself that will affect me this week? So if you're battling worry and anxiety and the message is on the sovereignty of God, then maybe you take that a verse from the sovereignty of God, one verse that he's in control, and you memorize that and meditate that on that during the week. And you're not worried, you're not thinking about lust and greed and anger, all these uh, thousands that you're, you're taking one piece of truth and you're applying it to an area of your life. That, that might be one. Uh, what, what is one truth he's calling me to believe and how will it help me to grow in patience or peace or joy? Uh, maybe I'm to memorize and, and apply, apply that. So just do one thing. L- let me say a word about taking notes during the sermon. I, ju- I take notes when I hear sermons um, and I think that's valuable even if I don't review them later. Because for me and for most of us, uh, the, more, uh, the more you interact, the, the more you'll pay attention and the more you'll remember. So just the fact that I thumb it into my phone or my iPad or jot it on my, what, my paper, whatever, just the fact I'm doing that, even if I don't review that every day, that's valuable uh, at some point because it just helps, it helps me be a better active, an, an active rather than a passive listener. But let me say this about note-taking. I think le- fewer notes are generally better. The goal is not to come here and get a transcript of what I'm saying. That's not the goal. Oh, I got it all. I got, got everything you said. <laughs> Great. Okay, you just walked out with the menu. It's a meal. We're, we're, not, we're not just trying to memorize the menu or get everything on the menu down. We're trying to have a meal, and we're trying to take one thing in our doggy bag, our to-go bag, okay, to apply to our lives. That's what we're trying to do. So I think a, a better notes, and I don't off, always do this, but better notes would be that the two main points I gave today, maybe a point under it that affected me, and, and maybe a scripture that specifically did, and write down one thing I want to respond to. One thing I want to respond to. So maybe the one thing today, I'm not giving you a lot. Maybe the one thing is tomorrow morning, I want to read my Bible and I want to come away with one application. That's the goal. That would be a great application. So don't be a transcriber. Get the important thing. And it'd be, it would be better to write down one sentence of notes that you apply this week than five pages of notes that sit in your phone or your notebook or whatever it is and you never, don't do anything about it. So it's not, the goal is not how much can we get, but are we, and the same is true if you journal, uh, journaling can be very helpful, but if you journal in your quiet time, I, I think a great journal would be one sentence each day of what God spoke to you and how you seek to apply it. One or two sentences, that would be, it's, it's good to have a bunch of stuff if you can, but just make sure there's something that's an action step of something you're going to believe, something you're going to trust the Lord for, something you're going to pray, some way you are going to act. I was meeting with a guy uh, this week, and this is what he told me about last Sunday's sermon. This is a great example because I, I covered the longest psalm in the Bible. We read a ton of scriptures. I said a ton of different things. And he said, here's what we did. We heard the mess. I heard the message. Um, and then we took Psalm 119, he said, and I'm just reading one verse at the dinner table uh, to my kids. This is someone with kind of younger kids who has to kind of explain it very simply. But we looked at Psalm 119. We talked about you could meditate on a verse a day, and in a year you'd go through that psalm twice. Gave that example from Matthew Henry's dad. And, uh, and so that's why somebody did that. I said, brilliant. I talked about a thousand things, and many of us heard the thousand things and left and haven't thought about it since I just mentioned it. That, he took one piece of Scripture and applied it to one area of life. What was the area of life? 
training my kids and teaching them to love God's word and value God's word. That's just one area of life. But he took one verse a day and put that to one area. That's brilliant application. That's fruitful. You do that on a weekly basis and God will change, God will change us. But if we just hear and do nothing, then we will, well, we will simply be deceived. So take the truth like that gentleman did and apply it somehow in your life and you'll have another chance to apply it at community group and, um, and talk about it because we, we apply in community. And the last thing, and oh, I'm done, is that we need to have a long-term mentality. Application, sometimes we think of application as like, I had the one, uh, you know, I had the one thought and everything changed in my life. Sometimes that happens. You read a passage and it radically changes you. You walk up, you sit up, and you're different. Or you hear a sermon, wow, that was the sermon that changed. Sometimes that'll happen. Like maybe a handful of times in your life. Most of growth is I hear something, by God's grace, I see something of Christ, and I seek to respond to it one day at a time, one step at a time. It's ordinary, it's perseverance, it's day in, day out, and that is how life change comes. It doesn't come with a few lightning strikes. Now, God will give us some lightning strikes of, well, that sounds like judgment, but I meant like, wow, the lights went on and this is great. That'll happen a few times to us, and let's trust God for that. But it's day in, day out, a little bit at a time, hearer, doer, simple thing, hearer, doer. Am I doing everything in the Bible? I can't concentrate on doing the whole Bible all the time, every second. I can't, that's overwhelming. I can't concentrate on doing everything the guy said in the sermon. I can't concentrate. If I read a chapter of the Bible for my devotion, I can't do every verse. I can't even remember. But I could do one, I could respond to one place the Lord has his finger on my heart. One and be a hearer and a doer, and I'll be blessed. I'll experience freedom. As I look into the law of freedom, I'll experience freedom and life change. And that is a joy and not a burden. So the word is God-breathed, and he changes us as we hear and do. And he cultivates an appetite for his word as we hear and do as well. We want, as we go, to be blessed in our doing by God's grace. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.